0: All right, well, we are continuing this morning in our study, walking through the book, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, More Than a Memory, by Richard Barcelos. Today we're in Chapter 5, which is titled Confessions and Catechisms. So we'll be looking at what various Reformed uh, confessions and catechisms have to say about the topic of the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, just at the outset, anytime we're approaching a doctrinal matter or a, a topic of theology or a uh, topic of uh, the church, you know, uh, such as the Lord's Supper, uh, what is our ultimate authority that we're going to go to first when we do that? <clears throat> well, it's always going to be Scripture, right? Scripture is always going to be our ultimate authority uh, for understanding what God has said about that particular topic, whatever it may be. However, we also do have um, a lot of good references in the historic documents that have been put forward by the church, um, by fellow saints who share our commitment to Scripture as being authoritative, but who have also done a lot of study and documented, you know, in a more systematic way what Scripture teaches about various theological topics and doctrines. So, we have that in confessions and creeds and catechisms that have been handed down by the church over the years. However, we always take those and go back and test them against Scripture, right? Because Scripture is the Word of God confessions, catechisms, or the word of man doesn't mean that they don't line up with the word of God, but we do test them against it. Well, Barcelos took this same approach with his book, right? Barcelos is making an argument in his book that he gives away right up front in the title of the book. He's arguing that the Lord's Supper is not just a memorial ceremony where we remember Christ's death and resurrection. It is that, but it's more than that. It's also a means of grace. It is a means by which God blesses His people that He grants them redemptive blessings uh, through this particular means through the Lord's Supper, along with other means of grace, baptism, uh, prayer, uh, the preaching of the word. and so he's arguing that this is a there's a spiritual transaction happening during the Lord's Supper. Spiritual blessings are being provided to. God's people at this time, and he started out, you know, the last three chapters that we went through, he started with scriptural evidences of this, right? So that was his approach, was first, let's look at what scripture says, and in each of those chapters, if you recall, we took a specific passage from scripture, and he really did a deep dive into it. We went, you know, often clause by clause or line by line through these passages, to understand what Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper. Now, following on to that, now that we've established the scriptural basis for the Lord's Supper being a means of grace, now in chapter 5, Barcelos turns and looks at, okay, what have the historic Reformed confessions and catechisms said? Do they align with what we've seen in Scripture? You know, what do they have to say? And, thankfully, they, they do align very well with what we've talked about so far in the book. So, whereas the last few chapters were a very in-the-weeds look at particular passages, exegeting Scripture, today's um, chapter is going to be a a survey of historical confessional statements, what confessions and catechisms have said about the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to see is a lot of consistency. Um, We're going to see that consistently these... Uh, statements put forth by Christians over time support the conclusions that we've drawn from our exegesis of Scripture. So quickly, just looking at a few of the things we uh, drew out with regard to the Lord's Supper in the past few chapters, you know, we walked through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. At that, um, in that passage, we uh, affirmed that the Lord's Supper involves communion with Christ and that it involves a sharing or a participation in the body and blood of Christ. We talked about what that means, that a sharing in the body and blood of Christ involves a sharing in the benefits that we presently receive, the benefits of redemption, the benefits of salvation um, that come to us through Christ, the breaking of his body and the shed of his blood. We have those salvific benefits because of what Christ did on the cross, and we enjoy those things presently in the Lord's Supper. Um, we also talked uh, in the next chapter, and uh, we looked at Ephesians chapter one, and we took a passage from Ephesians chapter one, and we looked at how the Holy Spirit is the divine deliverer of those blessings. So when we talk about blessings being granted to believers in the Lord's Supper. The one who's doing the granting or making the application is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is taking those blessings from God and applying them to God's people in the supper. Then we also looked at Ephesians chapter 3 and established that um, the Spirit also works through prayer. We looked at many examples as well um, in addition to that passage in chapter 3, where Paul is making statements to the effect that God blesses, his people in accordance with his will but he does so in response to their prayers and so we can have confidence that God hears our prayers he knows what we need and he actually uses prayer he works through prayer in order to bring blessings to his people all in accordance with his perfect wisdom and his good pleasure so we saw a number of these things the, the supper as a means of grace Uh, The Holy Spirit is the one who is applying the blessings to God's people in the Supper. Now, as we walk through these confessional statements, I think it will become even more clear that this is the consistent belief of uh, the church, and it's been well documented um, over time. So hopefully this will be edifying for you as it has been for me in my study uh, as we look through what Christians have said about the Lord's Supper in these various uh, statements. So to start out, um, we'll be looking at a number of different statements. We'll look at the Belgic Confession, Uh, we'll be looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith, we'll be looking at our own church's confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, Uh, we'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism and the baptized version of the Heidelberg Catechism, the Orthodox Catechism, and then also a few things from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So, like I said, you know, as opposed to the previous weeks where we were doing a deep dive on certain passages, here we're going to be sort of flying over a number of different statements, but we'll, we'll stop and, and point out the relevant parts of those statements and how they tie back to what we've already learned in our study through the book. So first, we'll look at the Belgic Confession of Faith, this confession was originally written in 1561. It was actually written and provided to King Philip II of Spain, the Catholic king there, in order to clarify the beliefs of the reformed churches in Europe, specifically the area that is now Belgium. Um, It was meant to clarify what they actually believed uh, over and against errors that were being uh, propounded about what they believed, and it was hoped that it would Uh, buy them some grace from King King Philip II because they were under heavy persecution at the time. It was unsuccessful in doing so. Um, Its author was ultimately martyred um, for his faith, but what they left us was a very uh, helpful confession of faith and a very early confession of faith. So when we compare this to Westminster Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that come a century later we will see a lot of consistency. But the first statement that we'll look at from the Belgic Confession is Article 33 of the Sacraments. So I'm going to read through each of these and then we'll talk a bit about them. Um, I've got it on the screen here. If the words are a little small. Don't worry. I'll, I'll read it for you. Um, but in Article 33, we read, we believe that our gracious God on account of our weakness and infirmities, hath ordained the sacraments for us, thereby to seal us unto unto us his promises, and to be pledges of the good will and grace of God towards us, and also to nourish and strengthen our faith, which he hath joined to the word of the gospel, the better to present to our senses, both that which he signifies to us by his word, and that which he works inwardly in our hearts, "...thereby assuring and confirming in us the salvation which he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible thing, by means whereof God worketh in us by the power of the Holy Ghost. Therefore the signs are not in vain or insignificant, so as to deceive us. For Jesus Christ is the true object presented by them, without whom they would be of no moment." Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments which Christ our Lord hath instituted, which are two only, namely the sacrament of baptism and the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus. So there, as we'll see in some of the other statements, we see the word sacraments being used. We're more used to using the term ordinances um, rather than sacraments. But if you look at the way they're using it, they are using it in the same way that we use the word ordinances Uh, over and against the way that the Roman Catholic church would have understood sacraments at the time. So they're talking about the two sacraments or ordinances of the church, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what do we see here? We see a number of things uh, that they point out about these sacraments and what they mean. Um, The article lists off a number of purposes for which God has ordained these ordinances. Uh, God has ordained these ordinances to seal unto us his promises, to, to be a seal and a pledge of the redemption we have in Christ, of the goodwill and grace of God towards us, as it says. They, uh, The sacraments are meant to nourish and strengthen our faith. So the participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper actually nourishes and strengthens our faith. Um, It also presents to our senses, right? It's a a sensory, uh, particularly the Lord's Supper, a sensory um, experience, uh, or make known to us that which he signifies to us by his word and works inwardly in our hearts. So it's an external experience that points us to something that God is doing in us. And then also to give us assurance and confirmation of our salvation, Um, partaking of Baptism and the Lord's Supper also helps us to have assurance of our salvation, right? This is a way that God uh, builds that assurance within us. Coming here um, each Lord's Day and, and taking the Lord's Supper helps us, helps remind us of our position in Christ. And so, <clears throat> lastly, I just wanted to point out that we also see it stated that these ordinances are means whereof God works in us by what? The power of the Holy Ghost. And so that was another one of the key points we looked at in these chapters, that it's the Holy Spirit who applies these blessings to God's people in the ordinances, in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. In that same confession, looking at Article 35 of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read the following. We believe and confess that our Savior Jesus Christ did ordain and institute the sacrament of the Holy Supper to nourish and support those whom he hath already regenerated and incorporated into his family. Jesus Christ nourishes and strengthens the spiritual life of believers when they eat him, that is to say, when they apply and receive him by faith. In the Spirit, the sacrament of the Holy Supper is for the support of our spiritual life. The Holy Supper is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself with all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merits of his sufferings and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drinking of his blood." So again, we see a number of the things that we've already discussed in the last few lessons being affirmed here. We see that the Lord's Supper does not cause believers to be regenerated and adopted into God's family. Rather, it nourishes and supports those who have already been regenerated and adopted into God's family. So in the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation, Um, Those who have already been regenerated, justified by grace through faith, and adopted into God's family are then sanctified by these means of grace, including the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. These ordinances help them to grow in their faith, a faith that already uh, has been granted to them by the Spirit. In the Lord's Supper, believers have their spiritual life nourished and strengthened. Again, we saw that last time. We see it repeated here again. And Christ communicates himself and all his benefits to believers so that they enjoy him and the merits of his suffering and death. This is what we talked about, if you recall, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The idea that sharing or participation in the body and blood of Christ is a sharing or participation in the benefits that we have through Christ. That's what they're confessing here. And we're... uh, enjoying the merits of his sufferings and death which is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Then moving forward in time we'll look and moving geographically to England we'll we'll look at the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, written in 1647. So this is the British Presbyterian Confession of Faith uh, largely held by Presbyterian churches today Um, Then we'll turn to a number of statements also from our church's confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which was written by the particular Baptist in England and was adapted largely from the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. So there's a a lot of consistency between the two. A lot of things are repeated word for word, uh, but then there are a few key changes, uh, obviously. Uh, these confessional statements help shed further light on how the Lord's Supper was understood by the Reformed churches in England at that time. And of course, uh, these confessions not only represent the English Reformed churches of that time, um, but they would be adopted by, or would at the very least influence, the confessions of churches throughout the English-speaking world over the following centuries, all the way up until today. So starting out, looking at the Westminster, in chapter 14 of Saving Faith, in paragraph 1, it states, "...the grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened." So in this concise statement, we see various means of grace being depicted. Saving faith is a gift of grace. It's said to be the work of the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of believers. And it's increased and strengthened through prayer and the sacraments or ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those ordinances are ways that our faith is strengthened in chapter 7 or sorry chapter 27 of that same confession there's further discourse on the sacraments themselves so in the first paragraph chapter 27 there we read sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by god to represent christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him Again, we see similar comments. The sacraments represent Christ and his benefits. That is, the redemptive blessings that we have in Christ. And the sacraments confirm our interest in him. They serve to provide us assurance of our position in Christ. Then in paragraph three of that same chapter, we read, The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments, rightly used, is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. So here we see... Additionally, some um, important aspects of the Lord's Supper, particularly addressing two different potential errors we can make. Um, on the one hand, the grace that God gives to His people through the sacraments is not just based upon the sacrament itself. It's not what uh, is referred to as ex opere operato, which is you know, in and of the thing itself. Um, just because somebody decides to go and out in the parking lot and have a Lord's Supper meal, God doesn't bless that just because somebody did it, right? It doesn't have any blessing within itself as an action. Um, On the other hand, it also doesn't depend upon the personal piety of the person administering it, right? So it doesn't, the efficacy of baptism or the Lord's Supper doesn't depend on the piety of Brother Fry or, or Brother Wright or whoever is administering it, um, the basis for the blessings that come to us through these ordinances is entirely God's grace and His work, His choice to bless His people through them. Right. So it's it's completely an act of God, not dependent upon anything else, and not owed to us just because we decide to get together you know, at a tailgate and do a Lord's Supper or something like that. And so that's what they're trying to get across, or what they are getting across here in uh, Statement 3. Then, moving on to our Church's Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, we see in Chapter 14, again, of Saving Faith, in the first paragraph, a essentially the same thing that was stated in the Westminster with a very slight change. So let's read that really quick. Um, The first paragraph is, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. So we see in our confession, essentially the only change is that they've opened the door to other means of grace that the Lord uses um, uh, in addition to the sacraments, in addition to prayer. But essentially they're confessing the same thing again that we saw in the Westminster, that uh, faith is the work of the Spirit of Christ in the hearts of believers, and that it is increased and strengthened through these means of grace that the Lord uses. Then in paragraph three, we read, "'This faith, although it be different in degrees, "'and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. So here we see that saving faith itself true, genuine faith uh, of the believer is different in degrees. It may be weak or strong. It may be assailed or weakened. And so we know certainly from experience that this is true. At times our faith is strong and at times we feel quite weak. Well, the Lord has given means of grace, including the Lord's Supper, in order to strengthen that faith. So when we feel that our faith is waning we should always question whether or not we are availing ourselves of these means that God has blessed us with and that he uses to strengthen our faith. Are we uh, at church on the Lord's Day? Are we partaking of the Lord's Supper? Um, These are things that God uses to strengthen our faith and to strengthen our assurance of salvation. So when we're feeling weak, That's one of the first things we ought to ask ourselves, so am I, uh, are we praying, are we uh, making use of the means of grace that God has given us? Then moving on to chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper, Uh, we'll read a couple of the paragraphs there. Uh, Paragraph one reads, the Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches to the end of the world, for their perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So, again, we see a number of these aspects repeated that we've already seen. Um, The Lord's Supper is a memorial for the perpetual remembrance of Christ's death and the benefits thereof to believers. Yes, it is a memorial. Um, But it also confirms their faith and their participation of the benefits of redemption, of the redemption that we have through Christ. And it provides them with spiritual nourishment and growth, right? Spiritual blessings come to God's people through the use of the Lord's Supper. Uh, They are sanctified by these ordinances. And it serves as a bond and a pledge of the communion that believers have with Christ and with another in Christ. Something happens through the Supper that alters the souls of believers for the better. It's a means of grace. In that same chapter, we read in paragraph 7, "...worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified, and all the benefits of his death." the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So here we see a number of important points. The benefits of the supper are available to worthy receivers. Right, we discuss this each Lord's Day before the taking of the supper, But the Lord's Supper only benefits those who rightly discern the body, as we read in Scripture, who have repented of sin and who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation from sin, not trusting upon any merit or goodness within themselves. Those who partake of the Supper in an unworthy manner, on the other hand, bring on themselves a curse rather than a blessing. We also see the clarification that although the elements are physical and taken outwardly, the benefits of Christ, or the benefits that are received, uh, are received in a spiritual manner. Uh, those who fee- receive and feed upon Christ crucified spiritually rec- receive all of the benefits and blessings of his death and resurrection. So in contrast to the Roman Catholic view uh, of the elements physically becoming the body and blood of Christ, we affirm that Christ indeed is really present at the supper, but he's present spiritually, and the blessings that we receive from him in the supper are spiritual blessings. So given all of this, it's right to say that the Lord's Supper is a spiritual transaction. Next we look at the Heidelberg Catechism, composed in Heidelberg, Germany, and officially adopted in 1563 by the Reformed Christians there. This catechism contains a number of uh, questions and answers, like the other catechisms, that address these topics specifically, so we'll look at them, Uh, we'll look at a few. Starting with question 53, we read the question, what dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? And the answer given is, first, that he is co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he is also given unto me, makes me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, comforts me, and shall abide with me forever. This is important for us because it reinforces what we learned when we looked at Paul's theology of the work of the Holy Spirit in the previous chapters of the book. We see here that the Holy Spirit works faith within believers, thus making them partakers of Christ and his benefits. The Lord's Supper in particular, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, involves a sharing or a participation in the body and blood of Christ. So this is the work of the Spirit, making believers partakers of Christ and of his benefits. We'll now switch over to the Orthodox Catechism, which is a baptized version of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, written in 1680 by a particular Baptist pastor, Hercules Collins. And it is very similar to the Heidelberg, um, with a few adaptations. Uh, question 65 in this catechism uh, Says Since then we are made partakers of Christ and all his benefits by faith only, whence does this faith proceed? The answer there, the Holy Ghost works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. Question 75. How is it signified and sealed unto thee in the Holy Supper that thou dost partake of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all his benefits? The answer given? Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him, adding these promises. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me, and further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life, with his crucified body and shed blood, as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ." So here we see again, the Lord's Supper is a means through which believers receive redemptive blessings from Christ and by which they are reminded of these blessings. As the answer says here to this question, he, Christ, feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. This spiritual nourishment is called to remembrance in the Lord's Supper, but this spiritual nourishment also happens in the Lord's Supper. In question 76, Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the New Testament and his blood, and St. Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? The answer, Christ speaks thus not without great cause, namely, not only to teach us thereby that like as bread and wine sustain this temporal life, so also his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink of our souls unto life eternal but much more by this visible sign and pledge to assure us that we are, as really, partakers of his true body and blood through the working of the Holy Ghost. Notice there again, communion of the body and blood of Christ is effected through the working of the Holy Ghost. His body and blood are our spiritual nourishment, as the Catechism says, true meat and drink of our souls unto life eternal. And then question 81, who are to come to the table of the Lord? The answer, those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. So it is those who genuinely repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness and who desire to grow in faith and to grow in holiness. It is those people who are proper partakers of the Lord's Supper. And those who are not repentant, not trusting upon Christ and take of the supper, eat and drink judgment to themselves. And so finally here we'll look at a few more questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And here we'll see, as we would expect, a restatement of a lot of the confessional statements that we already looked at from the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? The catechism that goes along with the confession is essentially uh, a training tool helping uh, to educate on what the confession has stated. So, in question 88, we see the question being asked What are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? Answer The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So, again, the Lord's Supper as a sacrament or an ordinance is a means by which we receive the benefits of redemption. Again, here we have uh, this definition giving us or pointing us to the Lord's Supper as being a means of grace. On question 91, how do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The answer, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation not from any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Spirit in them that by faith receive them. Right? This is what we already talked about before from the confession, that uh, the source of the blessings, the basis of the blessings in the Lord's Supper are uh, the grace of God and uh, Christ uh, blessing his people through the work of the Spirit, not the ordinance itself, not the person administering the ordinance. Again, how are the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper effectual? By the work of the Holy Spirit. And then, lastly, question number 96, what is the Lord's Supper? Answer, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. In the supper, we partake of the benefits of Christ, we're spiritually nourished, and we grow in grace. Well, hopefully, this survey has been helpful for you all and reinforcing the points that we've been discussing in the last few chapters of the book. Uh, You know, as I mentioned, we started with exegeting Scripture, which is where we always start, Um, but now looking at the uh, statements put forth by faithful Christians over time, we see a consistency that I hope um, just uh, builds you up in your confidence as uh, we seek to uh, have a right understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and let that right understanding guide us into a right practice of the Lord's Supper. Hopefully it, it helps us all to um, to have our minds in the right place during the Supper so that we acknowledge what's going on, that there is a spiritual transaction, that the Lord is using that means to help us to grow in our sanctification and to grow in assurance of our, our salvation, to grow in our, the confirmation of our position in Christ. Um, next week, uh, Pastor Fry will finish up this book with some closing thoughts and comments. Um, oh, Sorry, two weeks. Yeah, next week is uh, our confession, right? Uh, in Sunday school, we'll be covering another, uh, the next section of the confession. And then in two weeks, we'll, we'll finish the book. But uh, quickly, did anyone have any uh, comments or questions or thoughts uh, before we close? Okay, uh, let me go ahead and pray and we'll uh, close Sunday school here.